Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for this special episode of the weekend wrap, Ben Davison. Joining me here live from our bedroom, very John and Yoko Ono style. <laughs> I am in my pajamas, but Ben, being an adult, is not. I am fully He's dressed. Not in my pajamas. I yet. am fully dressed. Uh, is the great and the glorious Van Batum. How are you, Van? I, I love the John and Yoko vibe, but who's John and who's Yoko? <sighs> John Lennon and Yoko Ono. No, no, as in, am I John or Yoko? I'm the one with the beard. So. All right, okay, well, it's all about the beard then. I thought we'd move beyond gender. Anyway, it's been a huge week in Australian politics. Obviously, we discussed the budget on Wednesday's episode. We had Dutton's budget reply, which frankly was underwhelming on Thursday. Do you know I didn't even realise he'd made one? Yeah, it was pretty pretty underwhelming. A lot of a lot of nothing really. Uh, no no new initiatives. No vision for the future. Just a lot of labour bagging. Uh, and effectively, really now the debate has turned to how sustainable is the budget. What are the issues in the budget? And I think it's really uh, useful for us to consider, uh, given Jim Chalmers' interview on Insiders today, that. This budget is in October. Budgets are normally in May. And really, I think the budget in October has served the purpose that it was really designed to serve, which is spark a conversation about the state of Australia's finances and what we might need to do come the May budget van. Yes. I think it's been good for Labor to establish a framework of what their values around budgets are going to be. Uh, I think it's been I think it's been important in terms of affirming a tone of responsible new management. I think that's really been the function of this budget. We do know that we're living through an inflationary period. This is, by the way, everybody happening across the world. You know, there are problems with inflation in New Zealand. There are problems with inflation, obviously, and one or two other things in the UK, and so many problems in the US. Why we could talk about them for a thousand years, but. I think with those kind of pressures that most Australians are not used to and don't really remember what living with inflation is like, it's been very important politically for the new government to set the tone of we are confronting crises in a rational and calm manner, no one be alarmed. And this is in stark contrast to obviously the UK where a new leader came in when we're going to just change everything immediately and might be chaotic for a while, pork markets. And everything went completely bonkers. Yeah. So you can see the political, there's been a political case mounted through what's been prioritised in the accounts, you know, the, this very much sort of adults are in charge again theme. And it doesn't really give the Liberals a lot of ground to play on, Ben. No, it doesn't. And it it really shows that Dutton hasn't objected to any of Labor's initiatives in the budget uh, they've tried to fixate on energy prices. And, and I think there's a couple of points I want to make here. Uh, the first on energy prices, Australia is heavily exposed to international energy markets because the Morrison government has refused and refused for a decade to institute gas reservation. It refused to have an energy policy, 22 different energy policies during the course of of nine and a half years of coalition government, none of which ever came to fruition. Discussions of opening new coal-fired power stations and gas-fired stations, not enough investment in transmission, not enough investment 
in generation. We've seen in Victoria, Tasmania in particular, some reversal of that, some steps in the right direction. State striking out on their own. Queensland is a good example there. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that's going to take time to come online. There is discussion, I think, about what can be done in regards to particularly gas companies in Australia reaping huge windfall profits. Uh, And one of the things that I I sort of thought was interesting was this idea that you might regulate a bit more strongly, uh, have codes of conduct, pricing codes, those sorts of things. You might have some kind of uh, tax arrangement that claimed back some additional money in the short term and then handed it to low-income households in the medium or long term. But also we should be very mindful of the fact that while we discuss a structural deficit, and this is where I guess the conservatives are starting to try and put pressure on things like the NDIS, uh, hospital funding, some of the core elements of what makes our society uh, inclusive of all people and facilitates actual economic growth through participation, upskilling, value adding, they're putting pressure on those sorts of programs. We should remember that 29 of the 33 countries in the OECD have a quote unquote structural deficit. It's not uncommon to have structural deficits. What our structural deficit, the problem with our structural deficit is that essentially so much of it was waste Mm. and the Morrison government and the coalition era wasted so much money and and really the fact that Labor in just a few months was able to find 20, I think it was $26 billion. 22, I believe. In in wasted money that it was able to claw back, including billions of dollars for things that required legislation that hadn't been passed, shows the, the waste that they have built into the budget system. They were more pork than barrel at the end. They really were more pork And this pork is the barrel. thing. Like if you are pork barrelling, you actually have to invest on, on in the barrel, yeah. and by which I mean this is a metaphor for infrastructure. Like infrastructure, the most important document, I believe, in Australian political history is the Curtin government white paper on full employment from 1945. To me, yeah. it's our Magna Carta or our constitution. And it makes the point that the wealth of Australia depends on infrastructure because infrastructure not only gives you gives government the capacity to invest in people at, on jobs, building the Harbour Bridge, you know, digging ditches, building power supply, all those things, but it actually gives you the resources for economic development in the long term. Having an excellent uh, NBN network, making sure that we are at the cutting edge of science and, and research and investment, uh, making sure, of course, that we are mitigating against bushfires and climate change, all of those kind of things are massive economic threads and the infrastructure investment is is a bulwark against future risk, Ben. And I think, I think the notion of infrastructure has evolved though as well and it's important that we acknowledge that because I think the NDIS is infrastructure. I think, you know, early childhood education is infrastructure in the same way that primary education and secondary education and TAFE skills and tertiary education are all part of the infrastructure. They're part of the knowledge infrastructure. They're part of the participatory infrastructure of our nation. And, and they do have an economic return. It was interesting to hear Chalmers today on Insiders talk about, you know, needing to 
have reviews and needing to crack down on fraud in things like the NDIS. And we know that some of these programs have been riddled with profiteers. It's like the gas industry. Ticket clippers. You know, like we've got, we do have Uberized platforms. We do have foreign private equity. We have payday lenders. You know, we have people taking percentages out of government-funded programs without scrutiny, without oversight, without regulation, whether it's the NDIS or whether it's the whether it's extracting our natural gas. These are companies that are profiting from the taxpayer, whether it's from taking the resources that belong to us in the ground or taking cash from us out of our Commonwealth Treasury. These are resources that belong to all of us. Now, they might serve a particular group or a particular community more than others, but it is effectively our commonwealth. And so it's absolutely right that there be a review about who is profiting, who is who is getting the gain from this, because when these programs are run well, we know the NDIS, if it's run well, for every dollar it returns $2.25. Not to mention allows people with the capacity to be productive in the workforce too, and how crazy is this, be Productive in the workforce. Absolutely. And just like our just like our gas uh, supply as well, you know, this is fundamentally vital to how our economy works, not just for heating our homes, but for fueling our businesses as well. And talking about product productivity in the workforce, Van, of course, the other big piece of legislation was the Secure Jobs Better Pay uh, Bill. Now, I should also mention that, you know, the Australian Union movement and Labor have delivered on 10 days paid family domestic violence leave. Which is just amazing and will literally save lives. Absolutely save lives. Will actually save lives because it will allow people who are subjected to violence to have the economic means of getting out of abusive situations. So if you support that, if for no other reason, that is reason enough in my view to join your union, you can log on right now, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, for week on Wednesday, you can join your union while you listen to us on the podcast. Because let me tell you, the union movement is now fighting for workers to get a fair share of the productivity they have been creating in our work workplaces through this Secure Work Better Pay Bill. And Van, the, the numbers on this are stark. CEO pay went up 40% this year. We've seen profits go up 26%. And productivity has gone up 13%. But over the same decade, workers' wages have gone up 1%. So, and unemployment is, of course, still with a three in front of it. So we've got all of the indicators that say- Wages uh, should be going up. Yep. Under the neoliberal framework, wages should be going up and up and up. Of course, inflation is going up, but they're not. Wages are not going up because there is a power imbalance in our system. And that's why we have to have legislation that changes the power balance. We absolutely do. This is entirely correct. Workers have got to be given the capacity to bargain in the workplace. It was interesting watching the discussion in Insiders um, and it was sort of, there was a bit of nicknamey business. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. Spearsy calling David Crow from Fairfax Crowy. And, you know, this is in a world of like probes and it's all a bit private school. And I've got to say, boys, that it doesn't help 
the majority of Australians who, by the way, went to state school feel represented by their fourth estate when we're watching a bit of tough behaviour, I've got to say. And it's it's also really sort of I mentioned this in the context of a discussion about industrial relations mm. where you have a class of people who don't really understand what it's what it means to to be um, on the on the rough end of the pineapple side of an unequal power dynamic in the workplace and what that means. Like it was just one of those really culturally revealing moments with a bit of, oh, don't know about this multi-employer bargaining thing. And it got brought up, they used a clip from Jennifer Westacott, yeah. who's from the Business Council okay. of yeah. Australia. Oh, yeah. I, miss, I mess up my boss's organisations, as you can imagine, um, saying, oh, yes, you know, we're worried about small business because multi-employer bargaining, like, oh, the big the big multinationals well, will be able to handle it. Well, she, she said that uh, we're hearing lots of talk about people wanting to take strike action. Yeah. Which is not true. No, and that's <laughs> not true at all. The overwhelming, the overwhelming, and when I say overwhelming, I mean like thunderously 99 plus percent of people don't actually like taking industrial action. Like nobody likes having to go, well, I'm going to give up my pay because I have to take strike action because my employment situation is so bad. Yeah. Like nobody nobody likes doing that. Yeah. Like it's not a fun thing. Um, but it's this whole mythology that, you know, small businesses will be worse off. And it's like actually it will be levelling the playing field so big corporations can't poach your staff and, can't, and like, this. Oh, it was Absolutely. just so – it was just so typical. It was just really the small town burgers of well, it's, it's, Poshville. It, oh, just – yeah, it's, sorry. It's big business pretending to be on the side of small business and that, that's the And they're thing. not. Spoiler – they're and, not. Well, they're not. And you know you know how you know they're not? Because they're reaping record profits from gas. You know, like whenever I hear people like Jennifer Westercott talk about their concerns for small business or even the, um, the journalists from The Australian talk about it on Insiders, you know, if you care, if they cared about small business, they would be advocating for those gas companies to slash their prices mm. for small business. Because small business, you think small business, you think cafes, you think of retail, businesses that rely on energy usage. And for now, a big part of their bills, yes, wages are a big part of their bill, but so are energy costs, so are rent. And who who is reaping the windfall from high rents and high energy costs? Big businesses. Absolutely. So there is no question in my mind that this faux concern that big big business lobby groups have about small business is absolutely about trying to scare people. And let's break down the bill a bit because there's a lot in here and it is complex, but this has been on the table for years, this discussion. So this kind of idea, oh, it's all being rushed. It's been a decade, a decade of discussion about how broken our system is. Nothing about this is rushed. All of this has been in ACTU documents for a decade. I know because I was part of and privy to those discussions and those congresses where they were passed, part of ALP conference uh, policies that were put forward, part of ALP election platforms. It's actually hard to think of a piece of economic policy that's had so much rigour. Absolutely. And so this idea from some crossbench senators, oh, it's being rushed. It's not being rushed. So let's look at what it is. Multi-employer bargaining will have multiple streams. One of the streams will be for funded programs, things like the NDIS, aged care, early childhood education. 
where essentially the funder is the government and there is a plethora of very small employers where the employees don't have the power to bargain because of the the, the atomized nature of the workforce. Absolutely. Or, or even or even big business is sort of like, oh, well, maybe that's okay. So I think that's a pretty straightforward one. There's then a stream around common interest. And the person from the Australian on the insiders was suggesting, oh, well, this could mean that, you know, everyone who's uh, got a shop in a Westfield is going to end up on the same bargain. Well, that seems incredibly unlikely because they have also got different interests. But yes, where workers come together and go, we have a common set of interests and we wish to bargain around them, there should be a mechanism for them to do that. Also, there should be a mechanism for the independent umpire to make decisions, which currently the independent umpire can't. They can conciliate, but not arbitrate. Arbitrate is binding, conciliation is not. Under the new Secure Work Fair Pay Laws, the independent umpire could make an arbitration. They can make a decision. They can say, yes, there is a common set of interests here that outweigh the different set of interests and there should be capacity to have a multi-employer bargain. Or they can say, "Mm, no, this isn't going to quite work. Let's sit down and conciliate over what we can agree on. Now, unions are not getting it all their own way here, Van, because the union movement has said, hang on a minute, we're going to have to go through conciliation before we can take industrial action. We already have to go through so much paperwork and all the rest of it. Well, look, I can I can sympathise with that position that they already have a lot of hoops to jump through, but it is intrinsic to how multi-employer bargaining works around the world that fundamentally it's about getting an agreement, right? It's not about employers locking out workers, which we're seeing more and more of oh, already. Or agreements being cancelled, which again we're seeing more and more of, or workers taking strike action, which we know workers don't want to do. It's about getting an agreement. So there's a lot more in this around the Fair Work Commission playing an active role, getting the participants around a table, getting an agreement on what is actually possible, practical, and fair. That's important. There's also going to be some changes to the way short-term contracts work. And you know as well as I do that in things like higher education, um, in some of the care industries, there is an abuse of short-term contracts. We know that in higher education, people are now made casual or they're put on contracts that start on day one of the term and finish on the last day of the term and they get no paid holidays, they then get a new contract for the next term. What this will do is say you can only put people on two consecutive contracts for a maximum of two years, and if the role is ongoing, they have to be offered ongoing employment. And people can take that to the umpire and go, this is ongoing, I want my job. So there's, again, a built-in safeguard mechanism there that gives people more job security. That, that's a game changer for for education, for higher education, such a huge, huge shift in favour of working people. Now, big business will go, oh, this is going to smash small business. Well, no, it's not. It, that will have very little impact on any small business. In fact, big businesses, universities, multi-billion dollar businesses like universities have been abusing short-term contracting for years. Yeah, 
They really have. And I mean, I've been on the receiving end of that in various capacities. I worked in the university sector for a long time. And I mean, one of the many reasons I don't work there now is because it's a structurally exploitative working arrangement. I like to shout out to the NTU. I did a gig at a university recently and that union is fighting really hard against like a massive casualization culture that oh. has overtaken those places. And certainly I hope that over the coming years of Labor government, a reorganisation of the higher education sector that looks at, you know, the structuralization of casualization oh. is something that the, the new government can address. So solidarity with my NTU comrades from the movement. I want to also point out that there's a couple of other parts of, of the industrial relations bill that insiders didn't discuss at all. Uh, that are genuinely going to make a difference to the way our communities function. So at the moment, you have the right to request flexible working arrangements. So that's so you can pick up kids, you can care for elderly parents, you can attend doctor's appointments, whatever it is you might need to do. You have a right to request, but there's no, there is no obligation on the employer to do more than respond to the request. And there's no mechanism to appeal. There's no fairness test, there's no capacity test, none of it. This bill introduces the capacity to appeal it. It means that instead of dismissing it out of hand, as we know many employers do, there's now the capacity for a worker to go to the umpire and say, I want a ruling on this. Now, that will mean, in the first instance, that will mean that employers will take those requests more seriously, which means more people will get flexible arrangements because it's in everyone's interest. We know this where employers actually actively engage in this process, they get more productivity out of people because people feel more valued in their workplace. But it also- Not to mention a workplace is reorganised to maximise channels of productivity. Absolutely. But it also means that where employers are acting unfairly, the umpire can step in and deal with it. This is a huge, huge improvement. I know it's a radical concept, Ben, but it's a truth that probably should be more universally acknowledged. People don't actually like being unhappy at work. Yeah. You know, people tend to gravitate towards jobs where they have a good time, where they feel valued, where they're doing something that can connect with a sense of purpose, meaning and community. I mean, how out there is that? I know. It's, it's like phenomenal. The other... The other thing that's gone a bit under the radar is this banning of pay secrecy clauses. We know that particularly big business, again, have used pay secrecy clauses to atomize their workforce. That is to separate people from one another, to stop them, literally legally ban them from talking about their paying conditions with each other. This is an insidious attempt to decollectivize and deorganize workplaces. Banning pay secrecy clauses is absolutely vital to ensuring that people are able to understand the true productive nature of their relationship to work and able to organise and collectivise. Because if you and I are working in the same same job, doing the same work, and have the same skills and experience, but I'm getting paid 20% more than you, and that's true of every man, versus every woman in a workplace, that's probably a gender issue. Yeah, it seems like a gender issue. And what we know when these pay secrecy clauses do get broken open from time to time. That we suddenly see a whole bunch of gender pay gap. Absolutely. 
Amazing. Yeah. God, what an incredible coincidence. So this secure jobs, better pay bill is fundamental to making a fairer Australia and all the scare in the world about, you know, small businesses are going to be forced into collective agreements and, well, we know that's just not true. We know it's not true. Small business are going to gain in the new dynamics of the workplace against their competitors from big business. And I personally, Ben, think that's a good idea. So do I. I think it's interesting that insiders only had the quote from Jennifer Westercott and nothing from anyone from the union movement. Yeah, or the small business lobby. Like, yeah. I found that very <laughs> conspicuous. And the fact that the footage was of Jennifer Westercott literally sitting next to Michelle O'Neill from the ACTU who was just like eye-rolling. I thought she, her eyes rolled so far back in her head I thought she'd fall off a chair. And it was like, could we have a word from the uh, representative of uh, the millions of workers, please? Well, look, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. There's obviously a lot of debate. There's I'm a- sure we'll hear from Spearsy, Crowy, Probesy, you know, <laughs> yeah, Moisty, but, you Bingo, know, Pongo, Pornface. So there's so there's three weeks of Senate <sighs> uh, Senate submissions and hearings on the bill. Some of the crossbench senators have said they want longer. Uh, and, and, you know, it goes back to what I said before, Van. If you're not across these issues, it's because, uh, and you're a senator, it's because you haven't been paying attention. So feel free to share the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. With the with your local crossbench senator. Ben and I are more than happy to explain to them uh, the framework <laughs> of industrial relations in this country and its relation to the economy. And Australian unions are running a campaign encouraging people to write to their senators. Because, frankly, the idea that one or two senators would hold up fundamental reforms that will increase the ability for workers to get more secure work and better pay, this is not just about bargaining. This is also about job security, around contracting. It's, a, it's about flexibility arrangements. There's a lot of positive stuff in this. Like the idea that a senator, one or two senators, would hold this up is just ridiculous. So... And don't underestimate the power that you have over a crossbench senator. Absolutely. You know, one of the formative experiences of my life was watching how a very well-organised AstroTurf campaign um, targeting just a few crossbench senators back in the days of Lazarus and Ricky Muir yeah. and, and those guys and under the first Abbott government, um, how though like targeted calling of those senators made them put their votes behind an anti-union bill that literally made roads more unsafe for truck drivers. Yeah. And they voted for something that was morally unconscionable just because an organised group of pro-industry profiteers. People who owned 20 or 30 trucks. Yeah, were campaigning to do that. And it really had a huge impact on me. So don't be backward in coming forward. The, The power of your organic voice of complaint in crossbench terms, is much more powerful than you realise. Absolutely. Well, Van, there'll be lots, I'm sure, for us to talk about on Wednesday. And don't forget uh, to check out our supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, where we, of course, post extra links. Van's latest uh, Guardian piece around Halloween, we will send out with this podcast to our supporters. Uh, And, of course, we will talk more 
on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. Now I need to say two things. I was talking about the Curtin White Paper and I mentioned the Harbour Bridge as a piece of infrastructure. I am aware that the Harbour Bridge predates the Curtin White Paper. <laughs> ben and I are in Sydney and obviously it's on my mind as a conspicuous piece of infrastructure. I'd also like to say about Halloween, I am very aware of the fact that it is originally an Irish ritual known as Samhain, being from a family from the west coast of Ireland myself. Thank you to all of the middle-aged men who wrote to me to instruct and school me on something I already knew. That's, I guess, what the internet is for. Until next Wednesday, when we will talk for the week on Wednesday. We love you all, but I love you! I love you too. Remember, be kind to yourself and to each other. Bye!